Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Go to Luke 13, verses 1 to 9. Luke 13, 1 to 9. about you, but uh, this season of life has been distracting. Jesus, Jesus told people that when they went to, to pray, let them go into a closet and close the door. Uh, can I just ask that for a few minutes we close the door? Uh, there are probably a lot of things that we could be thinking about. Some of you guys are already thinking about lunch. Bless your heart. Um, some of you guys, like me, woke up maybe thinking about the election, you, you, things overwhelming you, uh, and, and can we, for a few minutes, close the door and try with all that we are to focus and then to ask God for help? Would you do that with me? Father, we, we do pray that prayer right now. So even before I read your word, bring us into your presence. We, your Bible says we can come boldly to the throne because of what Christ has done for us. We can do that. We can come boldly. So we come. But Lord, uh, the battlefield oftentimes is fought in our minds. And so would you help us to close the door to our minds, help us to focus on you. Would you incline our heart to your testimonies, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law, unite our heart to fear your name, and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right. Um, If you would, and you're willing and able, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, verse 4, Or those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? That worse offenders right there in Greek is a greater debtor. You think they're a greater debtor than anybody else? Verse 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told them this parable. 
A man had a fig tree planted in his garden, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word today. Please be seated. Okay, so here's where we were last week. Last week, we remember that Jesus said, I come to cast fire on the earth. He came, he came to bring judgment. Then He says, I came to be baptized. And then he, he even says, I didn't come to bring peace, but rather I came to bring a division. And so we talked about that last week, and that was a, that's a hard statement to make. It's hard to hear, it's hard to speak, and Jesus' mission was to save the world, but it was to bring judgment as God in the flesh and to bear judgment as Messiah among us. He came to bring it and to bear it. So Jesus had just finished teaching that to these people, and he turns to the crowd in verses 54 to 59, he essentially says the time's getting closer. Today is one day closer to that judgment day than yesterday was. And I said last week, I'm not convinced that, um, that Jesus is coming back soon. I'm also not not convinced that he's coming back soon. If we look at the times around us, they're pretty interesting times. He says, so since time's getting closer, settle your account with the judge before it's too late. Settle your account with the judge before it's too late. Settle your account with God. This is a heavy moment that Jesus is teaching these, these people. And in that very moment, someone brings up what would have been a well-known political tragedy. Did you, did you see that? There was a tragedy in the temple. He says, what about... All those people whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices. And so I, we believe what this man is talking about was well known to them, but most likely not well known to us. And he's essentially saying Pilate came into the temple. Seems that he might have killed people as they were offering sacrifices in the temple. Or at least maybe killed people in the temple. And their blood is mingled with the sacrifices. He says, what about them? What about them? And then it, he asks another question. He goes on, or Jesus brings up another um, situation in verse 4. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. What about those guys? Have you ever noticed that when conversations get uncomfortable... People have a tendency to shift the conversation away from what is causing their discomfort. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and they say, well, I would believe in God, but what about why do bad things happen to good people? What about all the people in Africa who, who, who haven't heard the gospel like us? What about them? What are they doing? It's called deflecting. Shifting the blame. And this is exactly what they're doing. 
Jesus takes just a few verses and he addresses their, their question. And so I want to do the same today. So we've been asking this question for a long time. Why do bad things happen to good people? He brings up there's a, a political tragedy and a natural catastrophe. We seen any of those lately? So this does not hit home for us, does it? A political tragedy and a, and a natural catastrophe. I, I just, I wonder if God's not trying to get our attention through all that is happening in the natural world. I remember Romans 8 says, all creation groans. Longing for redemption. And you could see that, can't you? If, if the, earld, uh, the earth was an old cantankerous man, he's sure doing a lot of grumbling. See, here's what they believed in this day. They were asking the same question that we are. Why do bad things happen to good people? But they came at it from a different perspective than we do. Okay, So Jesus' culture believed, essentially, that God is good and whatever the bad thing is, it happened because the people were sinners and God was punishing their sin. Do you see that in verse 2 and 4? Jesus answers. He addresses that. He says, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? He's addressing them. Do you think they're worse sinners than you? Or anybody else? And then in verse 4, are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders or greater debtors than anybody else? All the others who lived in Jerusalem? Jesus says, no, that's not the situation. This is normal. Check out John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. John chapter 9, I believe we got it on the screen. It says, and as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? So they assumed God's good. This man or his parents must be a great sinner. And this blindness is therefore a punishment for the sin of this man. Do you see that? Do you see that there? Jesus answered, or, or he, they asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it's not it was not that this man sinned or his parents. We know they did, right? That's an assumption. All have sinned. That's an assumption. That's not the reason. He says this is the reason. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the reason why you see this. And then Jesus goes on. All of chapter 9 and John 9 is about the healing of the man born blind. So they saw, their culture saw a tragedy or a catastrophe, and they assumed God's good, he's a sinner or she's a sinner, therefore God's judging his or her sin. People in our culture look at it differently. We see tragedy and we believe that, listen to me, that we are good, that God isn't, and this is unjust. That's true, isn't it? Why do bad things happen to good people? People of Jesus' culture said it must be the person's fault. And in our culture, we always assume that it's God's fault. Come on now.
people of Jesus' culture says, well, those people must not care about God. And people in our culture say, well, God must not care about us. Which is right. Neither. See, before we get to Jesus' response to them, I want to respond to our culture. Why do bad things happen to good people? Somebody might ask that question. There are two false assumptions. The first false assumption is that people are good. Why do bad things happen to what? Good people. I don't know if you've looked in the mirror lately. But Pastor Ryan is not good. Especially when I look at myself in the mirror of God's perfect word. I find out how desperately wicked my heart is. I find out how much of a sinner I am. I find out that I'm not a good person with flaws, but I'm an evil person that's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and that's the only hope I've got. I'm not good, and neither is any person. So that's a false assumption. And if somebody ever says, I'm good, good compared to who? Well, Hitler, of course. Fair enough. Fair enough. The second false assumption would be that because you can't see a reason for this tragedy or catastrophe happening, there must not be one. We are thankful that you're all-knowing, right? Can you get my sarcasm? I'm laying it on awfully thick right now, okay? Because you can't see a reason for this tragedy, we assume that there's not one. And I just want to challenge how prideful is that for us to say, well, I can't see a good reason. So there mustn't be one. Both assumptions are incredibly prideful. No one is good, and God is all-knowing, and we aren't. So that's how I would respond to us, our culture, and Jesus responds to them. He says this, Do you think that they're worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered this way? Jesus responds, no. He responds, no. Jesus gives another example of that natural catastrophe where the tower in Siloam fell on 18 people. What a horrible catastrophe. Nobody was in charge of that catastrophe. It just happened. Was it poor workmanship? Who knows? But what we know is the tower fell on somebody next to the pool of Siloam. And he, he says, what about those? Were they greater debtors than anybody else? And the answer, no. Right? No, they're not. This didn't happen because their sin is greater than anybody else's sin. What does Romans say? Romans says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, so death spread to all men because all what? Sin. All sinned. The cause isn't God's lack of concern or because we're horrible sinners. The cause is that we don't live in the garden anymore. We don't live in Genesis 2 in the perfect harmony of God and man and nature. We don't live there anymore. We live in the post-fall world. We live in the aftermath of Genesis chapter 3. Creation is longing and groaning and hurting for redemption. Men and women 
are living in the brokenness of that fall. Man rebelled, creation groans, and God has allowed us to live separated from Him. Are you with me? In that, when we live our lives, when mankind rebels against God and lives their life apart from God, listen to me, look at me right here. I don't care what you believe about God right now. Try living your life apart from God's standard, His rules, His commandments, and you will only end up hurting yourself and others. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Living your life outside of God's means or way, uh, prescribed way, will only bring pain, destruction, and tragedy. No, Jesus says, it's not because they're greater sinners. He says, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That you, unless you repent, if we were to rewrite it in Southern, it'd be y'all. It's plural. It's plural, y'all. Unless y'all repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, what he's saying is there's a death that's coming for you too because of your sin. There's a death coming for you because of your sin. It's a, a death that's both physical and spiritual. And repentance is necessary to change the outcome. That's what Jesus says. No, but unless y'all repent, you will all likewise perish. So why? Why does God allow tragedy and catastrophe? I think Jesus answered it best in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. He said, no, it's not that uh, this, this blind man sinned or his parents sinned, but it's so that the works of God might be displayed among him, in him, through him. And that's exactly what we see happen in John chapter 9, is that this man was healed, God was glorified, questions were asked, and Jesus was magnified, and people followed Jesus because of this man's testimony. Tom and I spent some time talking about this, and, and Tom, he, he couldn't remember the name of the preacher that said this, but he said, Steve Brown, he remembered, um, Steve Brown says that uh, bad things happen to uh, both those who are um, Christians and those who are not Christians, or, or the good and the bad, however you want to determine that. Um, it happens to them so that the world might see how Christians respond in light of tragedy versus how non-Christians with no hope respond in light of tragedy. It's an opportunity for God's People, those who, whose hope is set in heaven, it's an opportunity for them to respond to what Jesus has done and to say this tragedy, as horrible as it is, this catastrophe, as destructive as it is, does not affect the hope that I have. It's so that we might shine brightly in dark places as God's children. So the world may see the difference. Now, this is not what the sermon or the message is about here, but this is what he says, or this is the point here. Jesus brings it back to them. He, he says, no, but unless you. He aims the arrow back at them. Did you see that? They try to blame shift and deflect and get over here off of, what about these people? And Jesus says, no, it's not about them. It's about you right now. 
I'm not talking about them or to them, but I'm talking to you. And sometimes in church, you hear sermons and we say, yeah, those people over there really need to hear that sermon. No, you and I really need to hear a sermon. We need to hear the voice of God, not them. And we say, well, it's that world out there that we live in. They need to hear about Jesus. No, you do. Because when we hear about Jesus and that's transformed in our hearts and in our lives, look at me. That's when they will hear about Jesus. Is when Christ is set up and magnified in my heart. That's when they'll hear. So Jesus brings the question back to them. He says, unless you all repent, you'll all likewise perish. And so today I just want to encourage you, if Jesus is dealing with you about something, don't deflect. Be thankful. Your discomfort is really a, a gift of God's grace. Jesus is disciplining you if you're his child. And if you're not yet his child, he's wooing you into the kingdom. So if it's uncomfortable for you, good. That puts you in good standing because if, if God wasn't coming for you, it would not be uncomfortable. Be thankful. Be humble. Realize that we all need to repent. None of us have it all together. Amen? We're all works in progress. Jesus is working on every one of us. We all need it to repent. And be courageous to walk in obedience with whatever God's dealing with you about. Remember, seeing yourself in light of God's holiness is, is always difficult, but it's always a necessary part of your salvation and your sanctification. When God wants to change you, what does He do? He puts you right before Him. He strips you of all your excuses and you are exposed before Him. And you see yourself in light of His holiness. And God's gospel says that if you will trust me, I will change that. So Jesus tells them a, a parable to explain about repentance. He says the owner of a vineyard plants a fig tree. Here's what I don't know. I don't know if fig trees are normally planted in vineyards. But in, there is one in this one. He, the owner gives the tree the necessary nutrients. He cares for the tree, gives the tree time to mature and bear fruit. And later, the owner, he comes back to inspect the tree. And what does he find? Nothing. Nada. Zip. It's barren. The owner comes to the branches. He looks at him. He finds nothing. He finds the vine dresser and he says, take that tree down out of my vineyard. He says, why should it be allowed to take up space? It's, it's in good ground. The tree is bad. But the vine dresser intercedes on behalf of the tree. Vine dresser says, give me one more, one more chance. Give me one more chance to work with this tree. You remember, remember this story? He, he says, I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to expose the roots down there. I'm going to put manure on it. We've learned that raising chickens, we've learned that chicken manure helps make good veggies. Sure does. But that's exactly what he says he's going to do. I'm going to dig, I'm going to dig down around the roots. I'm going to put on manure on it. I'm going to give it all that I can one more time. I'm going to love this tree. I'm going to care for this tree. I'm going to take 
care of this tree and I will I will do all that is in my power to make this tree grow. And if it, at the end of one year it bears fruit, great. But if it doesn't, we'll cut it down. We'll throw it in the fire. So let's just understand something. Jesus is not talking about trees here. Right? He's talking about people. Like Jesus did long for his creation. He created it. He was pretty passionate about his creation, but he's more passionate about people. He's talking about people. All through the scriptures, God's people are referred to as a vine or a tree. It's a, it's a metaphor all through the Bible of how God deals with his people. Symbolic. The tree is symbolic, not just of a single person, but of a whole nation of people. And therefore, a bunch of individuals. And if it's true of the nation, it's true of the individual that makes up the nation. See, Israel was, according to God, Israel was his chosen people. It was his chosen nation. It was planted by God in the holy land. It was loved. It was cared for. Yet they never produced the fruit of repentance and faith. They had the law. They had the temple and God's presence. They had the prophets of God. They had the word of God. They had the tabernacle in the wilderness. They had the covenant and God's great and wonderful promises. They had everything that they needed, yet they weren't bearing the fruit of repentance. Sometimes to me, that rings a twofold bell, maybe threefold. Number one, individually, individually as a, a human, as a follower of Jesus Christ, sometimes I am that unproductive tree. I go through a barren season and I need the Lord to prune me and manure me. <laughs> Not literally. And manure me so that I might be fruitful once again. As a nation, our United States, God gave us everything but we, that we needed, yet we are an unrepentant nation. I know that America is not Israel. But we claim to be one nation under God. And for a time period, maybe we were. But we are not that now. And I think God is saying to that individual, me and to you and, and to our nation, it's time to repent. Unless you all repent, you will all likewise perish. The third way that this is, speaks to me is because sometimes it reflects the church. That the church of Jesus Christ here at Seneca Baptist, we have everything that we need. Yet we bear little fruit in the kingdom at times. So what is the fruit of repentance? What is the fruit of repentance? Three things that I can come up with in categories. Three things. Number one is justification. That means that when I repent and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, He justifies me. And I heard one preacher say, Justifi justified means just as if I'd never sinned. 
He he justifies me. He declares me not guilty in the throne room of God. Isn't that good news? He justifies me. He makes me right with God. Where at one time I was an enemy of God, rebelling against God, He brings me to God. He gives me peace with God. and He helps me walk with God. That's justification. And if you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not your own good deeds and not your church attendance and not because you think you're a lesser sinner than those people, if you've trusted in what Jesus has done, you too can be justified. Repent and trust in Jesus. Second is growth, or the spiritual word for that is sanctification. And I wish I had a clever thing for sanctification, but all it means, simply put, is that you become like Jesus day by day from one degree of glory to another. That you are on a process of where God is changing you and growing you and making you more beautiful day by day. Sanctification, growth. And the third thing is discipleship. Eventually what happens when the tree grows up up and it sprouts big and it puts out branches and it, it shoots leaves, eventually it will bud and those buds produce what? Fruit. And the fruit feeds people. It blesses others and the fruit produces seeds. See, you can't stop at just growth. So often in the church we say, well, all i got to do is be saved. No. Yes and no. If you are truly saved, you will be in a process of transformation called sanctification. Because God loves you so much that He will not leave you the way that you are. And if He sanctifies you, you will inevitably bear fruit in your life. It's impossible to be on a process of sanctification and not bear fruit. He can't stop at growth. I want to prove that to you out of Psalm 92. Let's read it up on the screen. It says this, The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Some of you are filled with the wrong kind of sap. (laughs) But what God's Word teaches us is that when you're planted, and you're planted by God, you flourish and you grow. And you produce fruit even to your old age. Some of us who have fallen into a retired category have said, I've borne my fruit. I'm done. The Bible says, no, you're not. If you're not growing and bearing fruit, you're dying. And you're in danger of being cut down. He says, repent. All of you. Or you will all likewise perish. It can't stop at growth. See, leaves on the tree and stronger branches are not what the master comes looking for. No, fruit production. Fruit production. If we don't have any fruit production, that means the master will cut down the tree no matter how leafy and how beautiful we are and no matter how many flowers we put out at the time of bud. 
See, individuals and churches can sometimes fall into this trap, the trap of growing in knowledge but not obedience. We never bear fruit. We can have the look of a healthy tree but be unproductive. And that's dangerous. We know the Scriptures, yet we don't obey the Scriptures. A church that looks busy, they're doing a lot of things, yet they're producing no fruit. Jesus says, I'll cut you down. So repent, or you will likewise perish. It's not making disciples. See, Jesus' rebuke is clear. The nation... A nation's made up a bunch of individuals. A church. A church is made up a bunch of body parts. He says, a nation is in danger of judgment. And judgment draws near unless there's a change of heart. Unless repentance comes, the national tree will be judged. Only repentance can change the course of an individual, of a church, and of a nation. From death to life. Only repentance can do that. We often will say at churches, if we could just do more stuff, then we would bear more fruit. And that's not true. Oftentimes, if we would repent and do less things, we would bear more fruit. Fruit bearing always starts with repentance. Where are you on that list? Justification, sanctification, discipleship. Where are you on that list? Are you bearing the fruit of repentance at all? Where do you maybe feel stuck in life? Well, I believe that I'm justified and I can see growth in my life, but I can't see fruit yet. I feel stuck there. Listen, it's good that you see that. But pursue that. Go into uncomfortable spaces with Jesus and let Him purify you. And maybe let Him lop off some branches and put manure on you so that you bear fruit. Where do you feel stuck? I love this end of this passage. It says that the master, it assumes that the master gave one more chance. Give me one more year. And it assumes that he does. Can, you, can we just say that God's willingness to hold off one more year shows that God is patient toward us? He's patient toward you as an individual. Aren't you glad that God's patience doesn't reflect your patience? I love what 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's desire is that not one single person on planet earth would perish apart from Him. He wants all to come to repentance. Now, all won't come to repentance, but He wants that. And He is willing to be slow He's willing to, willing to get pie on his face or egg on his face so that you might come to glory or come to, come to trust in Christ. Because in the end, God will be glorified. Thank God for his patience. 
He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The book of Romans says that He is forbearing of former sins so that people can come to Christ. God is long-suffering for our sake and praise God that He is. But God's patient mercy and His long-suffering will one day come to an end. Do you know that? God's patience, His grace, His invitation of grace will one day be pulled off the table. There's one day where it will be too late to receive that invitation. Some people say, well, time heals all wounds. No, time often hardens us against God. Just give them time. I just need more time. And time rarely in the Bible uh, brings about repentance. Time often in the Bible brings about a greater hardening toward God and His gospel. And so if, if God's dealing with you today, don't wait. Don't put off for tomorrow what you know to do today. So here's my application. I'm going to close and we're going to celebrate the long-suffering of God and His grace through Jesus. Here's the application. Three parts. Some of us might fall into all these categories. Other of us might fall into just one or two. Each one of us has sinned against a holy God and we deserve the judgment that is coming. We deserve destruction and that judgment is coming sooner rather than later. So trust in Jesus. If that's you out there and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, trust in Jesus today. Second, the second point of application is if you're stuck somewhere, repent. Ask God to dig around you one more year. I love that verse. And I just think that should be the prayer of our heart. Dig around me one more year, Lord. Just one more year, dig around me. Get Expose the, the sick roots that I have in my life. Those roots that are unhealthy, expose them and feed them with the nutrients that I need. Manure me so that that, that truth might get to the, the broken parts of my heart that I might begin to bear fruit again for you. Ask God to do that in your life if you're stuck. And third... Commit to an ongoing process of bearing fruit. Fruit bearers are producers. Listen to me, church family. Every church member should be a fruit bearer. Because church membership is not about what do I get from church. Church membership is about what do I produce. What do I give? How do I play into this? I'm an arm or a leg or a foot or a toe uh, or something. How do I... How do I produce so that the church might be better? How do I produce the fruit of repentance? Whether it's service or discipleship or seeing lost souls saved. Every one of us should be a, a fruit bearer and a producer. They meet the needs of others and they plant seeds. I just want to remind us again of Psalm 92. If we could put that on the screen one more time. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. Is that true of you today? 
I'm going to pray for us. And after I finish praying, our praise team is going to come up and lead us in a final song before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So would you join me in prayer? Father, I believe that we find ourselves in these three categories. I believe that some of us, we have not trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict them and lead them to trust in Jesus today. Some of us are stuck somewhere in, in that process of being justified, sanctified, and discipling others. So we're stuck. Father, that's probably the greatest group in this room is that we're stuck. And, and we repent and we turn to you and we say, we don't want to be here, but would you help us to know how to move from where we are to where you want us to be? And third, Father, would you, would you help each and every person here to be a, a productive plant that bears fruit, that casts seeds, and that grows other plants? Father, I believe you've spoken. I believe that you will continue to speak. So move us today to respond to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said... As the praise team's coming up, would you guys stand with me? And in these, these moments of singing, would you just ask...